Beloved, we live in the last days. That shouldn't be news to anybody who is at all remotely familiar with the New Testament. That is the word of God spoken to us. Paul tells us that in first, or excuse me, in Second Peter three, that we are in the last days. With the coming of the Spirit of God in the age of the church, we moved into the last days. There is nothing on the prophetic calendar that must occur before the return of Christ to take his church to be with him, to consummate the marriage of the bride. And so it always is imminent. It is always close at hand. It always, get rid of that thing, it always hangs over us in a good kind of way. It is a, it is a purifying kind of hope. But I think... We, as the people of God, also sense that uh, we are in some very difficult days that are not normal for, for what has been our experience here as an American church. There's no question about it that, that the culture around us is increasingly becoming paganized. In the ancient war that has raged from the time of the garden forward has, uh, has burst out to be seen in our culture, among our neighbors, even family members and friends. And when I say we're at war, I don't mean we're at war with people. Our war is not against flesh and blood. Our war is against the principalities, the rulers the demonic realm that seeks to enslave men and women with what the Bible calls the lie, the great lie. But there are definitely cultural uh, ramifications for this great war, and we're living in these days. One of the activities that characterizes the faithful remnant in the last days is a dedication to prayer. A dedication to prayer. Prayer is our lifeline to God. And the means by which we persevere within the Christian faith, particularly when the times are tough. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7, that the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Prayer is to characterize us, and even more so in these difficult days. Do you want to see God at work? Do you want to see God at work? Did it desire to to grow in the Christian faith? Do you long to live with an unshakable confidence in Christ in in the midst of a crazy, crazy world? Do you desire a deeper passion for Jesus? A deeper passion for his church? The answer to these questions, beloved, is is found through the power of prayer. It is as we pray. Beloved, God is all 
powerful. Amen? All powerful. And when we align our purposes with his through prayer, that's when we see the power of God on display through transformed lives. Ours and others, other people. We are returning again this morning to our study on living as a persecuted minority in a hostile world. And this morning, we are taking up the topic of prayer. The topic of prayer. Now, we obviously can't cover but a fraction of what the New Testament says, let alone the entire scriptures, have to say about prayer. And so, this is not a series on prayer. This is, this is a message in a series. But prayer is our power. Prayer is our power to, to live as that minority community in a, in a world that is very, very hostile. We're going to look at Jesus' promise this morning. Jesus' promise and its consequent effect upon how we should arrange our prayer priorities. My goal is to make this message really practical for us. Very practical. It'll begin just by looking at the promise of Jesus, his prayer promise. And so open to John chapter 14, and we'll look at that and use that really to set the basis by which we'll begin to look at some specific. I have 12 I know that's ambitious, but I have 12 prayer priorities for us. But let's here begin in John 14. John chapter 14. Beginning in verse 12. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. Jesus speaks these words to his disciples, the 11, Judas having previously departed from them. To go and to seek to betray Jesus. And so Jesus is speaking these room, these words are called the upper room discourse. It is spoken during those precious moments between the departure of Judas to, to go to the, to the chief priests and to, and to receive the Roman uh, guard to come and to arrest Jesus and the disciples. And the time when Jesus and his disciples flee the upper room and make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. So there's a, there's a narrow window of time. And so the things Jesus says in this window are very important. There's an economy of words here because there's just not a lot of time. But there's important things that have to be said. Really, this, this upper room discourse, one could liken it to the... The, the exchange that occurs in a relay race when one runner, having rounded the track and completed their loop, has a definitive window of time in which they're running and the other runner begins to run and they have to pass the baton from one to the other. And it, and it has to be a clean pass and it has to be a, a smooth handoff so that, the, so that the next runner can run their leg unhindered. And that's kind of what's happening here is Jesus is, is there together with his disciples and they are running together in that, in that handoff zone. And he's handing the ministry off to them. He is returning to the Father. He will be crucified sh- soon. He will be raised on the third day. He will, he will spend uh, 
the next 50 days with his disciples on and off, instructing them and so forth, but, but he is headed back to the Father. And so he needs to, needs to help them to be ready. So he says to them here in John chapter 14 and in verse 12, and he begins, truly, truly, and when Jesus says truly, truly, that's designed to perk up one's ears. Pay attention, truly, truly. I'm not, not, not that he was ever kidding. Well, I don't, he may have kidded occasionally, but it's not recorded in the scriptures for us. But, but what he's got to say here is something. This is super serious. Pay attention here. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Beloved, that is a promise. That is a promise. There are no caveats here. There are no out clauses here. This is really quite an amazing promise for Jesus to make. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I will do it. Now, what does he mean by all of this? What does he mean by What does he mean by greater works than these? You will do. There's really some interesting statements here, aren't there? Well, let's begin by just being reminded of of Jesus' public ministry. For the three and a half, approximately three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry that is coming to an end here and now, Jesus has been about one task and one task only. And that is to bring glory to his Father. His entire life, culminates at this point and and over these years for the purpose of bringing glory to his father. That's what he's about. He has no other, no other mission. He has no other, no other purpose. He has no other goal. You see it in, uh, for example, in chapter five, we'll just kind of look at them really quickly, but chapter five and, and verse 41 Where he makes the statement in, in John chapter 5 and verse 41, I do not receive glory from men. I do not receive glory from men. I am not interested in the glory of men. I am not interested in their acclaim. It's not why I'm here. Chapter 7. Chapter 7 of John's gospel and verse 18. He says, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. He is not seeking the glory of men because to seek the glory of men would be to to try to take the glory of God to himself. And he says, that's not what I am about. It's not what I'm about. I am seeking the glory of my father. Chapter 8, verse 50.
End of verse 49. I honor my father and you dishonor me, but I do not seek my glory. I do not seek my glory. Verse 54. Jesus answered, I will glorify myself. My glory is, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. Jesus has glory, but it is not a glory that He has sought on His own. It is a glory that God has given to Him as His only begotten Son, who comes into the world to bring the world back to God the Father. On a seek and save mission. Chapter 12. Verse 23. This is where Philip and Andrew bring some, some Greek to some, some Gentiles, to Jesus, to have an audience with them. And, and Jesus says to them, he answers them in verse 23, saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I have not sought my glory, but the hour has come for me to be glorified. Verse 28, Father, he prays, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus is only concerned with the glory of his Father. And he knows that his Father will receive the glory he rightfully deserves as the Son obediently goes to the cross, conquers sin and death, rises from the grave, and ascends to the right hand of the Father to return someday and establish his kingdom. Beloved, nothing changes with the purpose of Christ by his death, burial, and resurrection. His mission remains the same. It is to bring glory to the Father. What does change is the, is the means by which he carries it out, back to John 14. The means by which he carries it out is now through a transformed people. He is handing off the baton. It is someone else's turn to run the leg of the race. Verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. Because I go to the Father. Greater works. Now think with me for a minute. During Jesus' three and a half year public ministry, he essentially never traveled outside of the local area. He, he was contained, as it were, within the land of Israel. Yes, he went up to Tyre and Sidon a little bit further to the north, and he, and he went a little bit further to the east into the Transjordan area. But, but essentially, his, his entire life was, was in a very ge small geographical area. It was kind of parochial, one could say. And his, his ministry was confined as well to the... To the children of Israel, right? To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
In fact, specifically, he tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 and and verse 6, do not go to the Gentiles, but go only to the house of Israel with the message of Messiah. When he did go up to Tyre and Sidon, the Sidonian woman came to him and, and said, Master, you know, help me. And he, and he says to her that I've, my mission is only to the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she, of course, in great faith responds to him. But yes, well, even the dogs, you know, can eat the, cra- the, the scraps that fall from the master's table. You remember that. So Jesus' ministry was bound, it was contained, it was narrow. But following his resurrection, everything changes. Following the resurrection, everything changed, right? Matthew chapter 28, go into all the world, right? And preach the gospel. Make disciples of the nations. Go beyond where I have gone. That's what he means here in John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do. What are the works that he did? It was to proclaim the message of redemption and how to be restored to the Father that the kingdom is at hand. And you will do greater than these. You will go further than me. You will speak to more people than me. You will create more converts than I created. How? Because I go to the Father. Because I go to the Father. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, he says. Now, he says, if you ask anything in my name, verse 14, I'll do it. We typically close our times of prayer, don't we, by saying, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. But I think often when we say that, we do it without really considering the implications of what that means. It used to be when you wrote letters, you would finish them sincerely or very truly yours, right? And just sort of a a closing, a a way to finish it off. And I think that sometimes we we finish off prayer with, in Jesus' name. Just a way to close it. A way to let you know that I'm done praying and now you can pray. Right? If we were using radio, we would just say, over. Over. In Jesus' name. Now, it's not a magical formula. It's not a magical formula. What it means is that when we pray in Jesus' name, his name stands for him, who he is, what he's about. What is his goal? What is his mission? What is his purpose? So that when we pray in Jesus' name, what we're saying is we are praying in in thorough accord with how Jesus would desire, what he would want. And he will approach the Father for us. 
He will provide the, the access for us to God the Father. I mean, in verse 6 of the same chapter, he says what? I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You cannot be reconciled to your Creator except through Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, if you have not come by the way of Christ, that you have not turned from your sin and embraced Christ, recognizing that His death is a death that you deserve and that He has died in your place. And then when He rose from the dead, he, He conquered sin and death, and it is available to you by faith. He's the only way to the Father. But if you have come by the only open door, if you have been reconciled back to your Creator through Christ, then you can ask in Jesus' name anything. Anything. that would be in accordance with what he would desire, what he would want. And he says, I'll do it for you. That is an amazing promise. It is an amazing promise that you can ask and Christ will do. Let's take a look at some of these prayer priorities. Secondly, 1 John 5.14, this is our confidence which we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, John says. says here, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. What, what are the priorities of prayer? What, what are the things that are in accordance with the will of Jesus? What are the, what are the things that correspond to his name, that, that, that comport with his name, his purpose? And bringing glory to the Father. These are the things that, that should occupy our prayer. These should be our prayer priorities. Because when these are our prayer priorities, then we have a promise that Jesus hears and answers. I made a list. Then I refined it and condensed it. and Anyway, I ended up with 12. Probably could have boiled it down some more, but I got 12. So here they are. Our prayer priorities. First, personal confession. Personal confession, and I will add on to that, forgiveness. The prophet Isaiah says, Behold, in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. Nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Beloved, the Christian life is characterized by the confession of sin. 
The Christian life is characterized by the confession of sin. It begins with the confession of sin. All right, Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation the christian life begins with the confession of sin which is wrapped up in the confession of the lordship of christ if jesus is lord then his his word his purpose his his will should be ours and yet we fall short all over the place we act as though we're lord captain of our own ship Master of our own fate. And so the Christian life begins with the confession of the reality that we do not acknowledge and worship him as Lord. You remember in the garden when the serpent appealed to Eve, right? And she took the apple and she looks at it, right? And she says, well, it looks good to the eyes. You know, it's kind of pleasant looking and, and uh, it's supposed to make me wise if I eat it. And so she eats. She acts independent of God. And she plunges herself into sin. She hands it to Adam. He eats as well. And his open rebellion plunges the human race into sin. Sin is fundamentally the refusal of the lordship of Christ. So it begins with confession, but it continues with confession. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, you cannot live the Christian life without the regular confession of sin. Not to a man, but to God. That's why we always set aside a time of corporate confession when the people of God come together to worship God. We hear his word. We recognize how how short we fall, even as his children. And we confess our sin and, and Find our assurance of pardon in Christ. The Christian life, beloved, begins with confession. The Christian life continues with confession. So one of our prayer priorities has to be confession. Has to be confession. And because confession is part of the Christian life, so too is forgiveness. So too is forgiveness. God has forgiven us eternally in Christ, and therefore we are called upon to extend forgiveness to others. All right, Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 11. Hear the word of Jesus, Mark chapter 11 and verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against 
anyone. So that your Father who is in heaven will forgive you your transgressions. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. To pray in Jesus' name is to confess our sin and to extend forgiveness, to be willing to extend forgiveness to those who have sinned against us. That is the beginning heart attitude of one who will come to God through Christ. It has to be a priority. A second prayer priority is the unity of the church. A second prayer priority is the unity of the church. In John 17, beginning in verse 17, in the midst of what's known as Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays that the disciples would share a a common eternal bond by virtue of their common belief in the truth. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus prays for his church that they would be one, that the church would experience unity. And the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 that that prayer is answered by the baptism of the Spirit by which we are all placed into one body, the body of Christ. That is the reality, the the coming of the Spirit of God that, that creates the one body of Christ is the answer to Jesus' prayer here. We come into that one body by the Spirit's baptism when we humble our heart and believe upon the truth given to us, according to verse 20 of the word of the apostles, which, beloved, is the New Testament. Is the New Testament. That is the spiritual reality. We are one. But experientially, that's not always true, is it? It's not always true. In fact, it's, sad to say, seldom true. Seldom true. The church visible is frequently characterized by dissensions, turmoil, splits. But we're to pray that what is true Spiritually would be true experientially. We need to pray for the unity of this church. 
the unity of this church. If you are a part of Foothill Bible Church, it needs to be a prayer priority of yours for the unity of this church. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 15. He writes to the church there in Rome. Beginning in verse 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we be of one mind. May we be of one mind. Listen, the only way that's going to happen is when we are all focused on the same thing. When we all submit to, a, to, an, to one authority. And that authority is the Word of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, Following Paul's lengthy prayer there at the end of chapter 3. Where he prays in verse 17 of chapter 3. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And then notice chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Listen, part of the outcome of beginning to understand the riches of our inheritance in Christ, the beginning to comprehend the love of Christ, is that it produces unity among the people of Christ. The people of Christ. We need to pray for the unity of this church. We need to pray that we personally would not become a divisive factor in this church. Listen, the most dangerous person to the church is you. And you. And you. And you. And me. Outside pressure will never split a church. Never. It will come when the people of God take their eyes off Christ and begin to agitate for their own agendas. We need to pray for the unity of the church. Third. We need to pray for a greater love for the body of Christ. A greater love for the body of Christ. 
Newsflash. God loves the church. God loves the church. He loves the church, if I can say it this way, above all else. Because he purchased it with the blood of his own dear son. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Paul is writing here to the, to the elders at the church at Ephesus. He's leaving them. This is Acts 20. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Listen, when something is blood-bought, it's valuable. And when it is brought into existence, when it is purchased by the blood of his only begotten son, it is of supreme value. It is of supreme value. God loves the church. God loves this church. God loves this church. Not this building. God does not love this building. I have no idea what he thinks of this building. Perhaps he merely tolerates it. I don't know. Because we are the church. We are the church. And God loves us. Us. And we need to love like God loves. So specifically, specifically we can pray for a greater love for the church, a greater love for the body of Christ here by praying for a desire to be with the believers. Praying that that. That Christ would increase our desire to be here with each other. Now, some of us need to pray more than others for that, but all of us need to pray for a, for a greater passion, a greater desire for one another. We need to grow in this. We don't desire each other as we should. Oh, we may have a few really close friends. But I would suggest that that's probably a horizontal relationship rather than a spiritual relationship. We are to love and desire each other because we are one in a family here. We are part of the body of Christ here, brothers and sisters. You get a, you get a hint into this in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is really fascinating to me because Paul was at Thessalonica for a very short time. Told in the book of Acts that he was only there reasoning with them for a few Sabbaths. It's possible he was there for a couple of months, but he wasn't there long. It's not like they could have become, you know, deep, deep friends with these 20-year relationships. And yet, notice in Chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, how he prays for the believers there at Thessalonica. He says, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. 
Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. We looked at it just a couple of weeks ago around the communion table, right? Not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together. Isn't that amazing? Verse 10, night and day, we keep praying most earnestly that we could see you again. We rejoice before God on your account. Beloved, we've got a long way to go in our love for each other. The desire to be together. We can pray for a greater love for the body of Christ by praying for a greater passion to see other people grow in maturity. To see others grow in Christian maturity. For example, Colossians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's pretty amazing. This is a church Paul's never been to. He's never visited the church at Colossae. But he says, for this reason, for what reason? Well, we've learned from Epaphras, there in verse 7, that, that, you are, that you are walking in the faith, that you are loving Christ. And so when we first heard of that, we haven't stopped praying that you would grow in your understanding of Christ, that you would grow up into the fullness of the maturity of Christ. We can pray for each other. It's easy to pray for our families. Right? If you're a parent, you pray for your children. Right? You pray that your children would come to know Christ. You pray that your children who have professed faith in Christ would continue to walk in faith, that they would grow in maturity and, and likeness of Christ. You pray for your grandchildren, that they would come to know Christ, that those that do profess Christ, that they would grow in maturity to Christ. We pray for our parents. We even pray for our our close friends. But I think often it doesn't occur to us to, to pray for the person on the other end of the pew. Now, I get it. There's a big room. There's hundreds of people here. 
truth of the matter is, is that you don't know who most of them are. And they don't know who you are. Because you're all sitting in the same place. But you have the hub. <laughs> now, this is where small groups really come in. Right? You need to be involved in a, in a small group. So that you begin to, to know people. And, and so that you begin to develop a relationship with people. So that your love for people will grow. Not just in a, in a, in a general sense, but in a specific way. And begin to pray for one another. That they would grow in faith. You want God to answer your prayers? This is a prayer that God delights in answering. Delights in answering. Perhaps you're struggling with just a desire to be here. Maybe you're here this morning because you got dragged here. Maybe you're here this morning because it would be too embarrassing not to be here. But if you had your preference, you'd be somewhere else. And for some, your body is here, but your mind is somewhere else. Pray. Ask God. To, to rekindle a, a passion and a love for the body here. He delights in answering that prayer. Some time ago, Carol and I became involved with the college ministry, having been previously involved with the college ministry and having a fruitful ministry there and then leaving it for a time and then coming back to it. And when we came back to it, it, it wasn't the same. The, the interaction with the college students just wasn't the same. True confession here, it was a chore to go. And we looked at each other and we said, the problem doesn't lie with the students, the problem lies with us. We need to, we need to pray and ask God to change our hearts so that, that we begin to really love these students. And so we began to pray and the craziest thing happened you know god changed us and, and we really began to to love and long to be with the college students and you know what the next crazy thing was all of a sudden more college students started coming because part of our early discouragement was is is that just there weren't very many people that showed up but see, God wasn't going to give us a, 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 a large and fruitful ministry until our hearts changed. So you're involved in ministry. I know most of you are. You're involved in some kind of ministry. And, and maybe it's a challenge for you right now. Maybe it's a kind of going through the motions. You know, all right, I've made a commitment. I'll, I'll do this because I said I would. And, you know, it's way too embarrassing to, you know, be a flake. So I'll show up. 
but I really don't want to be there. Now, that could be a small group. That could be the nursery. That could be Awana. I mean, there's a million things it could be. But listen, if you're, if you're in that place right now and you're, you're fighting with that, you're having that internal conflict, God will change you if you ask him to. God will, will fill your heart with a, with a love and a passion for the people of God that will cause you to long to be with them and serve them in, in whatever ministry you find yourself. If you're discontented, the problem lies with you, not with everybody else. What kind of prayer does Jesus delight in answering? What kind of, what kind of prayer does Jesus promise to answer? It's a prayer that we would grow in love for the body of Christ. One more, and I, I guess maybe this just turned into two parts. <laughs> I really did not want to do that. But one more. First week back, I don't want to abuse you. Right? I think I went overtime two weeks ago, didn't I? Anybody remember? No, you can't remember? Then okay. You know who remembers? You know who can remember? Whoever's working in the nursery that week. They remember. All right. One more. Number four. A prayer priority for us is the glory of Christ displayed in the transformed lives of his people. This is, it's kind of comes alongside of what we've just been talking about. It's the glory of Christ be displayed in the transformed lives of his people. God elects unto salvation. God chooses who he will save out of the mass of humanity that have nothing to do with him and want nothing to do with him. That's the hard doctrine of election. But it's woven all through the pages of Scripture. The Apostle Paul spells it out in Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 28. We have what theologians call here the golden chain of redemption. That is that there is a series of links here. He says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, which means loved beforehand, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he, that is his son, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul looks from the, from the beginning of time to the end of time, basically. And he says there is, a, there is a golden chain here that begins and ends with God. And those he sets his electing love on, those whom he has foreknown in that way, excuse me, in that way, he will bring to glory. He will bring many sons to glory as the songwriter says. Now, it's not based on any merit in us, 
God does not look down the corridors of time and say, whoa, that one's kind of got a little bit of interest in me. I think I'll choose him or her. She's a, she's a pretty level-headed gal, basically righteous. I, I think I'll choose her. No, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians chapter 2, right? Children of wrath like the rest. But God set his love upon us. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone would boast. So we are always sinners saved by grace. You're sitting here this morning and and you are part of the family of God. You are a sinner saved by grace. If Jesus were to come right now and, and take his church to be with him, we would continue to be sinners saved by grace. Get used to the category for it is yours for all of time. A sinner saved by grace. It's all we'll ever be. But in this life, when we come to know Christ, we are expected to begin to grow in the likeness of Christ. Look at what Paul says here, right? In verse 29, he says he has predestined them to become conformed to the image of his Son. That is, God has chosen us, he has predestined us, he has elected us unto salvation so that we would exhibit the likeness of Christ. We're expected in this life to begin to show a family resemblance. And it's as we do that the power of God is displayed in us and the glory redounds to Christ. Again, we'll go to Paul's letter to that church in Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 11. To this end, we also pray for you always. I need to stop right there. We pray for you always. We pray for you night and day. I think we need to understand what Paul is saying here. Okay? What he means is there is a regularity to his prayer. There's a regularity to his prayer. These are the things that that occupy his prayer. Not that every single time he sat down to pray, he had this gigantic scroll of all of these things, and, you know, he couldn't get up from prayer until he had finished going through the roll. I don't believe that's what he's communicating. I believe what he's communicating is that this is what characterizes our prayers for you. To this end, we also pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. That our God will count you worthy of your calling. Not that, that he's going to look at you and say, okay, wow, that was good. I selected a good one there. He's turning out okay. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is, is that as God looks at you, he will see you growing in the likeness of Christ. 
So God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says he prays with great regularity for them that they will grow in the likeness of Christ, that their lives will be transformed, and as they do, Christ will get more and more glory out of these transformed people. We can pray this way. We can start individually, right? As we pray for ourselves, as we have a time to prayer, is to pray, God, help me to grow. Help me to grow like Christ. Help me, help me Father, to, to, to be able to learn some patience here. I, I am not patient. I'm an impatient man. I'm a man who lacks contentment. Always looking for the next thing. Father, help me. Help me to learn to be content. Help me to learn to be patient. Father, help me not to avoid situations that, that test my patience, but instead see them as opportunities to grow in the likeness of Christ. Father, you know what my boss is like. You know what it's like working in this situation. You know how hard it is. You know how I've been unjustly accused, slandered. Everything in me wants to fight back, wants to quit, wants to, wants to proclaim my righteousness. Father, help me. Help me to learn to suffer, to trust myself to you. That Jesus would be glorified when he looks at me. When people look at me. We pray for one another. When we're going through it, right? How often do we pray that people would get out of it? Do you know what I mean? I mean, I think it's our first response. Someone's sick, first thing we pray is, is they can be made well. And I understand that. And it's okay. But if it were just about that, God would keep them from getting sick in the first place. Don't you think he's powerful enough to do that? So if it's only about our physical health, then why would God let us get sick in the beginning? It's bigger than that. It's about in the middle of that difficulty, learning to trust Christ, growing in faith and all glory abounds to Christ. Yes, pray that God would heal them if you desire. But pray even more that whether God heal them or not, heal me or not, that I would image Christ through my affliction and that he would receive the glory. Beloved, these are the kind of prayers God delights in answering. Bow with me, Father.
We have so much to learn when it comes to prayer. Father, I have so much to learn. And the learning, first and foremost, needs to be experiential. We talk about a commitment to prayer, dedication to prayer. We talk about the power of prayer. Father, I confess that we don't pray as we should. That often our prayer is our last resort and not our first. Oh, Lord, help your faithless people. Do your good work in us. Draw us to yourself and and cause our faith to, to be firmly rooted in you. That we would come like a little child, come to their father and ask. Father, as the days grow darker, pressure on the church grows. For my brothers and sisters out and about in the marketplace, some of whom are even now feeling the pressures, we pray that you would strengthen them in the inner man, that their hope and confidence in Christ would not falter. That when confronted with decisions in which They were called to compromise that they would not compromise. Give them wisdom to negotiate these things, to know where to draw the lines. Our Father, as a body, draws closer together. Please protect us from division. Please help us to humble our hearts. And to seek one another's best before our own. God, make Foothill a lighthouse in a community that is desperate to see Christ, whether they acknowledge it or not. Do these things, not for our glory, but for yours. We ask in the name and in accordance with the will of our resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.